Morning, guys. Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Revelation. going to be reading chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> Revelation 20, 1 through 10. If you would read along with me, this is the word of God for us, for the church, in all times, all places. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. <clears throat> holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth that surrounded the camp and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, mindful of uh, my wife not being here this morning, I, I pray for her as she teaches at Crystal Springs this morning. Pray for our ladies, some of them who are there. Pray for your blessing on this weekend and their conference. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have as a church to support that ministry um, and to reach other ladies in our area with the gospel. Lord, as we turn our attention to the text, um, we pray for clarity, we pray for illumination into its meaning, and not just its meaning, Lord, but what it means for us, how we might obey it, how we might come under a little bit more of the kingship and authority of Jesus and be transformed into his likeness. Grant us unity. Lord, a text that has been used to divide the church, 
we pray you would guard us from that. We pray f- that you would guard us from any foothold of Satan in our midst causing faction or division. Preserve us in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We plead with you for that. Father, um, we also pray for confidence and courage to face death. It is our enemy. It is the last enemy to be destroyed. And yet, Lord, because of the hope we find just in this book, we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear losing those we love who are in Christ. We know where they are. We know where they will be. We know where we will be. And it is far better to be with Christ. So grant us courage. Grant us people who would witness to the world in such a way that we are not afraid. Even if they come for us under persecution. And we are asked to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. May we remember what we have learned this year. That there is vindication. There is a sure promise that even if we are coming under the sword for our faith, we will reign with Christ forever. We ask this all in Jesus' great name. Amen. We saw a vision of Christ last week, and it was warrior Jesus. Uh, There have been no Revelation 19 coffee mugs that showed up on my desk. I hope they're coming. I'm waiting. We come this week to perhaps the most famous passage in Revelation, the millennium, thousand-year reign. I gave you an insert, and, and let me just start with a brief summary of these views, just so that we're tracking together, because I I understand not everyone's equally familiar. This might be the first time you ever heard of this, Um, and that's fine. (laughs) Uh, It might actually be better if that were the case. Um, So let's just walk through that briefly as kind of just getting us all on the same page. So you have there a a first view, millennial. What we're talking about with these views is when does Jesus return? All Christians agree on the main things that are going to happen. Jesus will return. There will be uh, um, a resurrection of the dead. There will be a last battle, a judgment, and a new heavens and a new earth. Okay. To be a Christian, you've got to believe that. We agree. Now, what's the timing and how does it work out in terms of the text, particularly Revelation 20? That's where some disagreement exists. Amillennial means that we are in the millennium now. And at the end of it, Jesus will return. So he will return after the millennium. This is the view that I hold, and I've been bringing out at different points uh, in, in the messages in Revelation. Basically, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection brings about a long period of time of gospel advance and persecution of the church simultaneously. So we have really good things happening, and we have really hard things happening at once. And then Jesus returns at a day we don't know, and all of those events that I listed kind of happen together, concurrently, we would say. So we don't know how much time it's going to take to, like, raise the dead out of the ocean um, or judge the the nations. or We don't know time-wise exactly, but those things are kind of happening all at once, more or less, when Jesus returns. Okay, that's Amel. 
Post mill is very similar. Jesus returns after the millennium. Now, the difference is, if you ascribe to that belief, uh, you think that things are going to progressively get better during this time. That during the millennium, it's kind of a golden age of gospel advance, and we are going to Christianize the world. So institutions, education, government, art, these are going to become progressively more and more Christian. And that will tell us that, okay, we're getting close to the end and Jesus is going to return. Pre-mill believes that Jesus will return pre, before the millennium. This view interprets Revelation 20 differently. Um, Jesus, in this view, returns in Revelation 19 and then just moves forward with the millennium after he returns in chapter 20. He reigns on earth, not in heaven. So other views would say he's reigning in heaven. This view says he's reigning on earth during the millennium. After which you have a second major battle. You have a second resurrection. You have judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. That's the gist. Okay, that's, that's the basics of the, of the views. Um, you know, it's funny when you look at it and like you look at that little chart. In the end, there's not that much difference. Um, but we're trying to be faithful to the Bible. We're trying to interpret it. God gave us these things. We want to do our best. And in my opinion, it's a little sad that this is the most famous passage in Revelation. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> How much good, awesome, like fear-killing, hope-inspiring stuff have we found in this book and we're going to find as we keep going, and this is what we're fixated on? I don't think that's super healthy. Like, I don't think when Jesus wrote this, he's like, yes, I want more books to be written on the millennium than anything else in Revelation. This is where it's at. I don't think he feels that way. In my mid-20s, I was getting curious about eschatology, you know, return of Christ, end, end times, um, study of the last things, and I didn't know anything, nothing, <clears throat> And I asked a pastor for a book recommendation, and he handed me a book called Four Views on the Millennium. Not super helpful. Because it made me think Jesus returning is all about the millennium. And it's not. Plus, I didn't understand anything of what I was reading, like 10%. When I look back at that book, I got notes as like question mark, question mark, question mark. It's not all about the millennium. We have used this doctrine to create labels. So what's your millennial position? What are you, pre, post, ah, what are you? And then we label those people that we disagree with so we don't have to talk to them. So we can just slap a label on them and then, well, I'm not that, so I guess we don't have a lot to talk about. I grew up in the church. I grew up in, in mainly pre-millennial churches, like I'm guessing a lot of you did, and this was a big deal. Eschatology was a very big deal. It was talked about all the time, and I would regularly hear people call someone a name. Oh, well, they're a preterist. Oh, well, they believe in covenant theology. As if they believed in a different religion. Like you just called them Buddhist or something, and it was just the conversation is over. We don't even talk anymore. What can we talk about? We don't agree on the millennium.
you're actually talking to a brother or sister in Christ. You remember that, right? This is someone Jesus shed his blood for. You remember that, right? All sides are guilty of that. All sides. It happens in all, all kinds of churches, all views. all di- I mean, and, and these are like main views. There's some, you know, farther fringe stuff that gets really talked about in the garage on the cork board. If you, you know what I'm saying? It's the era of doctrinal sectarianism. Particularly in eschatology, it's created two bad things. Number one, division. Doctrinal sectarianism has created division, suspicion, anger, impatience, harshness among brothers and sisters in Christ. Not good. Gavin Ordland wisely asked, do you have a warm corner in your heart for every single true Christian, even if you strongly disagree with him or her on various issues? How would you answer that? Is your heart cold, impatient? They just don't get it. I mean, it's obvious. It's clear. Toward other believers, your family. Secondly, doctrinal sectarianism has created doctrinal minimalism which is also an error. Basically, everybody's mad at each other, and so my solution is just to throw my hands up and say, who cares? What does it matter? Do you love Jesus? Is he coming back someday? Jesus wins? That's all we need to know. That's not the solution either. A doctrinal minimalism. But you hear people arguing, you get frustrated, you say, well, I'm checking out. I don't want to get into that. I don't want to get involved in that. So forget it. Who cares? And I hear that a lot. You know, it's like probably you've had, some of you have had family situations like that, friend situations. You go to Thanksgiving dinner with extended family, and you got Uncle Premill, who's like, you can only trust MacArthur. Got my MacArthur study Bible. He says this, so that's it. That's the end of the story. You got Grandpa Amel. It's like, well, if it's good enough for Calvin, it's good enough for me, okay? I'm Amel. And then you got cousin uh, uh, Postmill, who's like, well, I, we got the Puritans, we got Jonathan Edwards, we got John Owen. I mean, come on, who doesn't want to take back the culture for Jesus? Who doesn't want Christian education to flourish? All arguing about Revelation 20 instead of talking about how to obey it. And getting angry. Instead of, instead of giving charity, and guess who's listening? All the people around the table who are now like, why would I ever get involved with that? Why would I ever care about that? And it produces doctrinal minimalism, like second cousin Patty Panmill, okay? Who, who, P- Patty is like, um, guys, you know, can we just get along here? I, I, I'm, I'm pan-mill. That's my philosophy. It's all going to pan out in the end, okay? Can we stop arguing about this? This, this is really... Now, that's clever, but it is in the Bible, Patty. We do have to reckon with it. We do have to deal with it, and I don't think the answer is to blow it off. I don't think Jesus would be pleased with that either, either while I understand the inclination. 
because of all these idiots arguing about it. So you don't want to fall into doctrinal sectarianism. You don't want to fall into doctrinal minimalism. Those, those are not the way to go. We need to do theological triage. Like a hospital. We need to do theological triage. How important is this doctrine? Does it touch the essence of the gospel? You shouldn't treat every doctrine the same. How clear is it in Scripture? Some things are more clear. Some things are less clear. Okay, but like a hospital, they don't treat every problem the same. They come in, you come in, they evaluate your problem, and they treat you accordingly. We have to do the same thing with doctrine. How important is it? How clear is it? How vital is it? So you have first-order doctrine. These are the hills you die on. I will be beheaded before I deny Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, my Savior. I, I'm sorry. It, it, that's, I am taking that. <laughs> you can never talk me out of that. These are the things that make you a heretic or orthodox, and heretics don't go to heaven. These are the things of first importance, the Trinity, divinity of Christ, substitutionary atonement, the resurrection. Die on that hill, but it's not the millennium. It's not Bible translations, fill in the blank, a lot of stuff, we're going to die on this hill. What? That is not pleasing to God. You may need to die on a hill. Make sure it's the right one. Second order. These are things, these are doctrines we must agree on to have a good foundation to do church together. Okay? Um, like baptism, like church government. Okay, if half the church thinks we should be Presbyterian in government, half the church we should be elder-led congregational, that ain't going to work. Okay, we got to have at least consensus, majority consensus. Now, people can attend, they can worship with us, who might disagree on those things. We love other denominations who are in the Lord, preaching the gospel. But these are things, in order to do church, second-order doctrines, we kind of have to agree on. Third-order doctrines are doctrines you can disagree on within the same church. Okay? We can, we can be members. We can agree to statement of faith. But things like gifts of the Spirit or eschatology, the millennium, we can disagree. It's okay. Our group of elders has different views on eschatology. That's okay. We, we work together in a spirit of charity and unity, we respect each other. We know that each man is committed to the Bible. And then unless it's a first-order issue, all of us are open to being reformed according to the Word of God. I'm guessing a few people were praying for me this week as I studied that I might be reformed according to the Word of God and come to a different view on the millennium. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Easy, easy there, tiger. I'm sorry to say that those prayers fell on deaf ears. We do church together. We love each other because we're a family. And it's okay. It's okay. And we can sharpen each other in the Word. Well, how do you get there? Well, okay, I take this this way. And how, okay, how do you get there? Oh, I take it this way. Oh, that, yeah, I could see how that could be true. We're not dealing with heresy. 
We're dealing with, in good faith, attempting to interpret God's Word in things that are kind of mysterious, kind of difficult, hard. Even things I'm going to present to you today that I feel persuaded of, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not dug in 100%. I understand I can miss things. I can't always see it clearly on second, third order things. Remember, church, if you're in Christ, you agree on far more than you disagree on. We have to act like it. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't. We separate and we divide when we shouldn't. Sometimes you should. A lot of times you shouldn't. So that's a 30-minute introduction, and we're doing good. At least we don't have Sunday school today. We're, you know, we actually do, so it's not good. All right, we're going to get through only verse 6 today. I have two points. Number one, Satan is dethroned. Number two, the saints are enthroned. Verse 1, look at it with me. Satan is dethroned. Then I saw. Mm -hmm. I am taking that phrase as telling us what John saw next, not necessarily what happened next. This is important. I See the context leading us to believe that this binding took place at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, not at a point in the future at his return. And the timing is a big question in how you understand this passage. Does then I saw mean after Revelation 19, we're just continuing in time and picking right up? And then the next thing that happens in time is Revelation 20. I'm saying, well, that's possible. I don't interpret it that way. I interpret it as simply the next thing John saw. And we've seen that in the book, that the series of visions that he sees is not necessarily chronologically linear. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. So the perspective of these six verses seems to be heaven rather than earth. Seems to be. Holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, most interpreters across the board do not take that number literally. As we've established in Revelation, numbers are typically symbolic. So, 10 times 10 times 10, a thousand, this is a number of ultimate completion. And it's just a long period of time. You remember in chapter 2 when the church in Smyrna, you're going to suffer for 10 days. It wasn't literally 10 days. It was a short period of time. Just the amount of time that God ordained. Bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Here's the big question. What does it mean that Satan is bound? What does it mean that Satan is bound? And I'm saying he is bound now in the millennium that we're in right now. It can't mean he has no power. It can't because Scripture interprets Scripture and we have other Scripture telling us, no, he does have power. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yeah, he's doing that. 
Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Yeah, he's scheming. I think it means two things. Number one, this is the binding of Satan. What does it mean? I think two things. Number one, he cannot stop the massive advance of the gospel. He cannot stop the massive advance of the gospel. And, and here's a few passages that persuade me of that. Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, it has come. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds, same word, the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So I take that to mean God's kingdom has come in Christ. He has bound the strong man. He is plundering his house. The gospel is going forth. You can't stop the kingdom of God from adding and adding and adding more citizens that formerly belonged to the kingdom of darkness. John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So again, you have a connection between a restraining, a binding, a casting out of, of Satan with evangelism. Thrown out of heaven. See Revelation 12. That would be a great chapter to read this week because I think it connects intentionally a lot with Revelation 20. Kicked out of heaven, unable to stop people from all nations from coming to faith in Jesus Christ as he's lifted up on the cross. Can't stop the massive spread of the gospel. What he can do is blind the minds of those whose names are not written in the book of life. If God has not chosen you, and we don't know who he's chosen and who he hasn't, Satan can blind you. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So Satan is on a leash. He has very real power, but it is checked. You cannot stop me from building my church, Jesus says. That's the first thing. Second, I think Satan's binding means he cannot deceive the nations and gather them for battle. I think we get that from verse 7 right here. Why was Satan bound until the end? Until just before Jesus returns. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So it's not time for that yet. God has bound him, restrained his power, for a long time, until it's time for that. This is the kind of power Satan had in the Old Testament before Jesus came, deceiving, attacking physically, spiritually God's people. Look what he did in Eden. There was no sin on earth in the hearts of human beings. <laughs> there was a very small church, okay, two people. Um, they didn't have any problems. They didn't have any disagreements. And he ruined it. A few words. And he ruined it in his attack on God's covenant 
people. Look what he did to Israel. Same strategy, just on a broader scale. Most of Israel, guys, went to hell. They had every advantage. Every advantage. And they left the Lord. And they almost got wiped out, like literally wiped out. Satan was very effective. Nations did not get reached with Israel. Their job, you remember, was to draw the nations to themselves. You're so different and and God is so great that the nations will come. They will come to you. They will see you as as being different and your God being strong. That didn't happen. I mean, a little bit, but not really. Satan tried this with Jesus. Herod tries to kill every baby, tempts him in the desert, and the cross. This was him trying to win. He thought he won. This is the power that he had, that he lost in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. At his resurrection, the church is born. Pentecost, the church is born. The dragon is cast out of heaven, stripped of his power. He can't deceive the nations any longer the way that he did before. Only when God decides it's time to send him to the lake of fire forever will he be given that power again. And like like a fool, he will use it unto his own destruction. He can't help himself. When he is led out of the pit, he's going to go gather everybody together, deceive them. God will give him that power, that permission, and he will gather them all together, and there will be a great battle, and fire will come down, destroy him into the lake of fire forever. He can't help himself. But that's what we're waiting for. That's what he's waiting for. He's, the Bible says he knows his time is short. He's angry. angry. What does it mean for you? Is it just esoteric, abstract theology? What does it mean? Guys, this is all about your neighborhood. This is all about your coworkers. It's all about your family. Unbelievers who are living in Satan's house, unbeknownst to them, that God through you and his word would rescue them. Plunder Satan's house. And some of you are living there right now. (laughs) You're living in Satan's house. You may not know it, but you're living there. It's on fire. It's going down. And, And I want you to get out. God wants you to leave. So hearing the gospel, if you've ever heard the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived and died for you. Your sins can be forgiven. It's like a fireman run, rushing into a burning building to rescue you. And if you reject that, you're saying, get off me. Leave me here to die. You curse the firefighter who came to rescue you and push him away. That's what it means to reject Jesus and the gospel. He's trying to rescue you. He's trying to save you. Why would we curse out the doctor who's trying to get the cancer out? Why would we push away the firefighter trying to rescue us from a burning building? This is Satan's house. It's going down. 
Let him rescue you. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Believe what I'm saying. Please believe what I'm saying. When it comes to people in your life, listen, if God wants to save them, and you should not assume he doesn't. There is no power in the world great enough to stop him. If their name is written in the book of life, and you should not assume it isn't. You should not assume. Satan, one of the most powerful people, most powerful beings in the world, more powerful than you, cannot stop God from saving them. And yet, it's really hard for us to believe. We default to acting like Jesus is the one who's bound. Satan's really scary, really powerful, really impressive. The human heart is just, it's just too wicked. You know what? It's just, the, 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 it's too much for the Holy Spirit, honestly. This person, you, the, the sin is too much. It's too ugly. It's too entrenched. I don't think he can handle it. That's not living by faith. That's living by cynicism. You're a cynic. You can see better than God. You know better than God. Why would you err on the negative when we have this God? I, I think many of you would say, I believe that God has the power to do it. I struggle believing He will do it. I think God's powerful enough to save my friend, my family member, my coworker, but I struggle to believe He's good enough to do it. So you believe in the power of God, but you distrust the heart of God. He's powerful, but I'm not sure He's good. Listen, it's better to live by faith and be disappointed from time to time than to live as a cynic and never be disappointed. That's not the way you want to live. Your heart will grow cold, your faith dim. You will not be the person that you want to be or God wants you to be. Love hopes all things. And whether it's this passage or the rest of the New Testament, do not assume God does not want to save that person. I can't tell you how many times I've been, eh, and then I hear, oh, yeah, they got saved. That's on me. That's on me. That's my lack of faith. Faith doesn't mean I never get disappointed or God isn't sovereign over salvation. He is. The point is, He's sovereign. You don't know where the wind's going to blow, do you? So why would you assume, not through that person's life, some of you have kids. Why would you assume? They're adult kids. Why would you assume? Well, if they would have believed, it would have happened by now. You don't know that at all. This is the beauty of God being in charge, God being sovereign over salvation, because He's not only sovereign, He's good. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but there is a chorus in heaven when someone comes home. Satan is dethroned 
the saints are enthroned. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones. Again, I think a clue that what we're seeing is happening in heaven. Typically, that's how that word is used, thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls, note that, souls, of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So these are the sealed in the language of Revelation. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Here's the big question. What does the first resurrection mean? I am taking it to mean a Christian dies and goes to heaven to reign with Christ until he returns. Now, not everyone would agree with that. That's how I'm taking it, and let me tell you why. John sees souls. Souls. Those who have died, separated from the body, soul, not physical bodies. And we know that's what happens until Jesus returns. So to me, okay, that makes sense. We're not dealing with a physical resurrection. Also, the use of the word first before resurrection, which you will not find anywhere else in the Bible, is the only place you find that, first resurrection, seems to refer to the old creation, that which is passing away, like the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Thus, in the first resurrection, we're dealing with a fallen world. The, the new earth has not come. Not yet physical, permanent glory. That comes at the second resurrection by implication. The resurrection. For an unbeliever, it's just the second death. Okay, resurrection unto death. For believers who die in the Lord, they go to be with the Lord, and then they have another life, another resurrection, a physical one. Forever. And honestly, I think this is just a fitting way to talk about the death of Christians. Um from the perspective of eternity, from the perspective of heaven, which is the perspective of revelation, it's like a resurrection. Yeah, you die, we have a funeral, we're sad, we mourn, absolutely, but we rejoice because you have come to life in the realest sense to be with Jesus forever. Your faith is vindicated. When you die in the faith, you have a kind of spiritual resurrection. Physical one to come. Death of an unbeliever, not a resurrection. It's just death. Physical, spiritual death, and all that's coming is more death. Eternal death, the second death, into the lake of fire. Here's the point, guys. Suffering and death for a Christian is victory. I know we say those kinds of things, but... Do you really believe that? This is victory. Think about what this means for Christians who lose someone in Iran, who 
committed to Jesus publicly, was baptized, and then killed because they're a Christian. They're hanging on to this. Think about what it means for us. Someone dies in the Lord early, young. They live a short life. It's unexpected. Victory. As as sad as it is, we're going to mourn, but we're going to rejoice. You are clothed with power. You are reigning with Christ. You are judging with the wisdom of God. Some of you have lost Christians you love, and we all will at some point. And I know a lot of your stories. I'm blessed to know them, of people that you've lost, people that you love. Grief can be overwhelming. And listen, heaven doesn't just fix it. Okay? It doesn't just make you go away. To know that they're in heaven, like, oh, I, I shouldn't feel bad anymore. No. It's very real. It's very deep. Because I'm not in heaven. I'm here. They are there. That's difficult. It feels like a, a long way away for me when I'm struggling. But please don't wish them back. They don't want to come back. They love you very much, but they're doing better, a lot better. I love the way Tim Keller said it, and I say said because he's just gone home to be with the Lord. Everything he preached is now sight, reality. He says, All death can do now for Christians is make our lives infinitely better. Amen. Are you holding that in your mind and in your heart, whether for yourself or those you love who are believers? This is why this stuff matters. Your understanding of death, heaven, return of Christ, like it matters. The truth is what gives you comfort. The truth is what gives you comfort. C.S. Lewis said it this way, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will get neither comfort nor truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with and in the end, despair. If you don't have truth, you got nothing. We say lots of weird things to each other when it comes to death. We try to say the right thing. We mess it up. We flub it up. And it's, it, it's just like vague sentimentality. Don't settle for that. Well, I'm sure they're in a better place. Everything will work out in the end. What is that? Or strange spirituality. It's like, well, you know, every time the doorbell rings, I know they're looking down on me. Really? How do you know that? Maybe some, like, like that, I think that was the Amazon Prime guy. He had his earbuds in. He just didn't, and he. Truth, the truth of the Bible, and it talks a lot about death, a lot about the end, a lot about the return of Jesus. This will bring you the deepest comfort. Beautiful promises that you can take to the bank because God has guaranteed them with the death of his own son. That's how you know. And that's what we offer to people because grief, this is a time when they're listening. Death, this is a time when people are listening. And we have to give them sweet, sweet truth, not vague sentimentality, not strange spirituality, okay? Give them this. This is what we need.
and prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. Get it deep in your heart. So when that day comes for you, and maybe it already has, you're ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sweetness of your victory in Christ over the forces of darkness, over sin and death. And Lord, no matter our disagreements, we can sing and say together how great thou art. May we do that, Lord, unified with one voice this morning as Christians, billions of Christians around the world are doing the same right along with us. In Jesus' name.